right. Oh, good. I just walked through spider webs on my way in here. It's a little hot. It's muggy. On a recent and rather hot Wednesday morning, I got to peek inside an authentic beat shanty. A tiny two-room, if you could even call it that, shack that's been thoughtfully preserved in Windsor's Boardwalk Park, southeast of Fort Collins. So how many people would live in one of these? Um, I guess it would vary. It would probably be a multi-family home. Possibly, I've heard up to 10 people living in this kind of two-room space that we're in, so it would have been crowded. The tiny bare-bones shanty gives a very real, very rare peek into what life would have been like more than 100 years ago for hundreds of families across northern Colorado, specifically hardworking migrant families from Russia and Mexico who came to the U.S. for the promise of a better life, maybe even one day their own land. And as a unit, kids and all, they would work the area's vast fields, in the heat, in the rain. And as a result of these armies of laborers, one of the area's first big industries, the sugar beet industry, was built on the backs of these German, Russian, and Mexican immigrants. Um, a lot of the, the beet shacks were used primarily just seasonally for the harvest and for workers that were working on the sugar beet fields. Um, but during harvest time, I mean, you're working dawn to dusk because families were paid by the amount and the weight of the sugar beets that they gathered and harvested. As a so life was not easy. Work. It was not <laughs> easy. No, not in any way. Farming sugar beets in the late 1800s and early 1900s, unlike the crop itself, was far from sweet. Especially for the children tasked with backbreaking work, like hoeing the fields, pulling the sometimes 10-pound root vegetables from the ground, and chopping their leaves off with this very, very scary-looking hooked knife. Some of these kids were as young as five. And while attitudes at the time started to evolve around this use of child labor, the agricultural industry was one of the last to get the attention of child labor law reformers. But it did, and eventually even Eleanor Roosevelt took an interest in the plight of these children toiling away in northern Colorado's beet fields. So in this episode, you'll learn about that explosive growth of one of our area's first real cash crops, the uphill battle for child labor law reformers during that time, and the undercover mission that helped put northern Colorado's own issues on the national stage. Oh, and I'll discuss the lie that I was told and believed for many years about one Eleanor Roosevelt. So, away we go with episode 18 of The Way It Was, a podcast podcast, The Bitter Side to Northern Colorado's Sugar Beet Boom. Through school, and you know, if you could go all the way through and going through 12th grade and graduating, would that have been a luxury at that time for you? I think so, yeah. I should say so. But uh, the reason why we couldn't go to school, you know, I didn't get farther advanced in school because we had to get on work in the fields. So we went out and 
well when was trying to thin beads. I work beads with my niece of blood because I used to trade myself in the fields. When did you start working in the fields? Oh, about 10, since I was 10. That's Eva Martinez, a late, longtime resident of Fort Collins. You've probably heard of her husband, Lee. You see, the land that Lee and Eva farmed north of Old Town is now city-owned and known as Lee Martinez Park. Do you remember what sort of money you got for working beets? Did they contract for your whole family for the season? Yeah, I think it was $12 an acre. I think that's what they used to pay. Mm which wasn't very much, but of course it was quite a bit at that time. This recording that you're listening to is more than 40 years old, from October 1975. That's when Eva sat down with local historian Charlene Tresner and Lloyd Levy of the Colorado and actually, to record an oral history of her life. She was 71 then, and would go on to live another 20 years in Fort Collins. And like many, many others raised in the area, Eva was a child of Colorado's sugar beet fields. I understand the thinning was you had to be very careful because... Oh, yeah, particular? Ooh, the field, if the boss would come and find a double, he'd come put it in our, in top of our, you know, our water pail to, to let us know that we left a double. There are several other oral histories from people who grew up working the fields with their families, just like Eva, but the quality of those recordings isn't as good. So I just went off of their transcripts instead, which are kept up by the museum. There was one from Ernie Miranda in the 1980s, who recalled being young and beholden to the seasons, to the unforgiving beet growing and harvesting cycles. And then there was Catherine Blem, who was interviewed in 1982. Blem was a Russian-born German, born in 1895. She came to Fort Collins with her family around 1910. In her interview, she recalled crawling through beet fields, thinning the crop until her fingers bled. It was hard ground, she said. It was hard those days. So how did all of this come to be? How did children become such a huge piece of such a tough industry here in our own backyards? Well, I'll let an expert answer that. Uh, I had been very interested in child labor, and I was also interested in immigrants. And I had done my master's thesis on the Visiting Nurses Association. That's Mary Lyons Carmona, an adjunct history professor at the University of Nebraska in Omaha. And her area of expertise is child labor in commercialized agriculture. She started her research by talking to people who had worked in the fields of western Nebraska as children. One man gave her some insights into why his parents had him farming with them. And he gave me a very good perspective because I went into this like the way most of the reformers went in, and that was that child labor is terrible, should be abolished immediately, and, you know, eventually this will drive up wages. But, uh, you know, he explained that the wages were so low for agricultural workers that if they had done that, you know, the 1890s through the 1920s, these people would have had nothing to live off of, or they would have lived off welfare. So he really gave me an insight into why the families, you know, it isn't that they were trying to uh, shortchange their children. They were just looking ahead more to the next generation. 
In 2005, Lyons Carmona penned an article on child labor in the early sugar beet industry of the Great Plains from 1890 to 1920. That's how I found her. And according to that article, the sugar beet industry at that time became the most publicly visible case of child labor in commercialized agriculture in states like Colorado and Nebraska. You see, after the Civil War, the country's consumption of sugar went up a lot. And there was a lot more being used in processed foods like jams and jellies, and as an additive in coffee and tea. There was also a tariff in 1897, the Dingley Tariff, which raised prices of importing foreign sugar by almost 80%. Hence, sugar beets raised in American soil started becoming super popular. Big companies like the Great Western Sugar Company got in on the game and started these giant industrialized sugar beet fields that they would bring people in to work and farm. At first, they mostly employed single men, but around 1910, they found a new cost-cutting measure. They would contract men who were at the head of large migratory families. The men would then figure out which members of their families could contribute to the farming needs to fulfill their contract. This practice, Lyons Carmona wrote, brought thousands of more children into farming. And some of these kids are like 10 years old, and they have to learn how to balance a sugar beet, which could weigh with the dirt on it somewhere between 7 and 10 pounds. And so they'd have to learn to lift up, let's say, their left leg to have the beet balance on that. And then the right-handed, they would take the hooked uh, knife and, and have to swing it and hopefully just cut off the leaves on the beet. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, at that age, they sometimes end up getting cut, scraped, you know, until they would learn exactly how to do it. So that, that part was kind of like immediate danger for children. Aside from the hard work of beet farming, the beet growing and harvest schedule also cut into one big thing school. In a time when having an 8th grade education made you bookish, Lyons Carmona said it was fairly common for children of migrant sugar beet families to miss months of school, if they even went at all. There was a feeling, especially among the German-Russian families, that they must work first and worry about school later. School was a luxury. Saving up for their money to buy their own farm, now that was the goal. After that, the next generation wouldn't have to work as hard. The next generation would get to go to school one day. It wasn't until around 1908 that people started to get a real glimpse into the issue of child labor across the United States. That was when the National Child Labor Committee, based in New York, hired photographer Louis Hine. Hine was tasked with traveling the country and documenting child labor. His photos are striking. The black and white shots show young boys working in glass factories, tiny girls operating cotton mills, and the worst, huge groups of dusty-faced boys crammed into coal mines. But there weren't any photos of children working in commercialized agriculture, not for quite a few years. Here's Lyons Carmona again. These farms are very spread out. And they didn't get the attention, and that was one thing my advisor says, you know, the attention was focused on the coal mines and the textile mills because you could actually go to a place and see 
20, 40, you know, 50 people at one time. You see these children working. You take pictures. With agriculture, you might drive for miles. You might think you saw a child. By the time you'd get up there, you know, they would be back with their family. Lewis Hine did end up making it out to some sugar beet fields eventually. Fort Collins' sugar beet fields, to be exact. The photos themselves, they're pretty eye-opening. I'll talk more about that after this short break. And I promise my Eleanor Roosevelt story is coming up. You're listening to The Way It Was, a history podcast brought to you by the Coloradoans' Facebook Messenger Alerts. Would you like to be the first to know when news breaks in northern Colorado? Or are you more of an entertainment junkie who would love to see the best options of things to do this weekend? Sign up for the Coloradoans' Alerts on Facebook Messenger for a truly customized news experience. Visit facebook.com slash coloradoan and send us a message to get started. Hi guys, I'm back. So one of the reasons that I made child labor in beet fields this month's episode was because my colleague Jacob Laxon, who you might remember from his guest podcast on Odell Brewing, is actually working on a story about the sugar beet industry. Jake's story focuses on the present and future of sugar beets in northern Colorado, going into advancements in the industry that have brought the crop back into the state's spotlight. Colorado actually produced 1 million tons of sugar beets last year, for the first time since 2000. And that's even with the area's dwindling farmland. So make sure to check out Jake's story, which will be coming soon to coloradoan.com. So, as Jake looked to the future, I wanted to peek back into the past. And this was a topic I'd actually been interested in for some time. You see, probably five years ago, I was told that Eleanor Roosevelt had toured northern Colorado's beet fields in the 1920s and was so horrified with what she saw that it helped spur the reform of some child labor laws. Pretty cool, huh? Well, so I went on telling people this for several years, and I didn't find out until researching for this podcast um, that it probably isn't true. (laughs) I couldn't find one dang thing to confirm that story. Yeah. Anyway... Something else, sans Eleanor Roosevelt, did pique my interest in this topic about a year ago. I was scrolling through the Library of Congress's online collection of historic photos, as you do, and I typed Fort Collins into the search bar. I didn't really expect any results, but about a dozen photos popped up. Aged and yellowed, the pictures dated back to October 1915, when Lewis Hine came to town. The photographs are like Hines' other work, striking. One shows a 12-year-old boy cutting the tops off of, or topping, sugar beets in a Fort Collins field. Hines' caption of the photo said the boy, his parents, and his nine-year-old brother all worked the sugar beet fields together and expected to make about $700 in two months' time, the equivalent of about 17 grand today. The boys would work all day, beginning at 6 a.m. and ending at 6 p.m., with an hour off in between. Another picture shows children gathered outside the Rockwood Place School, 
which was in the Trace Colonis area, south of Andersonville, it's since been knocked down. But three girls in the photo were apparently 14 and 12 years old, and in the third grade. The regular age of third graders was seven or eight. Another photo shows a 14-year-old boy who is four grades behind, in the fourth grade. The school's teacher apparently told Hines so many children were grades behind almost entirely because of the school they'd missed working in the beet fields. Finally, with Hines' photos, there was a face to this local issue. Many faces. About two decades later, another story would emerge. Another picture would be painted. And the one book for just for me to have the, the image was uh, by Hope Williams Sykes. She wrote a book called Second Hoeing. And it's fictional, it's like a novel, but it really kind of gave you a day-by-day look into the lives of these families that sort of their whole life revolved around the, the planting, the thinning, the blocking, and then the harvesting, uh, which went into the rainy, fall, chilly months, and, you know, how these families survived and pulled together. The really interesting thing about that book second hoeing, was that its author, Hope Williams Sykes, lived in Fort Collins. She and her husband ran a filling station at the corner of Vine Drive and Timberline Road, and Hope also worked as a teacher at the nearby Plummer School, which still stands today. In 1935, Hope published Second Hoeing, which depicted the tough lives of German-Russian immigrants working in Colorado's sugar beet fields. Sound familiar? The story is told through the fictional eyes of Hannah, a young German-Russian girl. While some local Germans from Russia weren't exactly pleased with how they were portrayed, the book was successful and gave a rare glimpse into the backbreaking work children did during that time. The book made such an impact that someone very special wrote to Hope to congratulate her on it, Eleanor Roosevelt. So hey, she's at least in this story a little bit. I don't feel completely duped. Anyway, years went on, and there were some efforts to curtail child labor in Colorado's beet fields. Lyons Carmona said that in 1917, largely due to Heinz's photographs, the Colorado legislature passed a bill that would require parents to get approval from their local school superintendent before any child under the age of 14 could work in the fields. In 1938, the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed but children working in agriculture were exempt from it. That wouldn't change until 1974. But by then, northern Colorado's sugar beet industry had changed. Machines started to do the work that children and families once did, and the Great Western Sugar Company closed its Windsor factory in the 1960s, largely ending a huge chapter for the once powerhouse crop. There aren't many sugar beet fields around anymore, and a lot of the farmland of Fort Collins and its surrounding communities have been eaten up by housing developments and the area's explosive growth. But that book, Second Hoeing, is still at the public library. Somebody actually had it checked out. I had to put a hold on it. And that beat shanty that I walked through at the start of this episode still stands down in Windsor's Boardwalk Park. Special thanks to Caitlin and Laura with the Boardwalk Park Museum for showing me around. And last, but definitely not least, those photos survived. You can actually flip through them now at coloradoan.com. 
Those eye-opening Lewis Hine photographs of kids as young as seven working in Fort Collins fields are still around. Hopefully, they'll always be. To remind people that, for many children, life here was as hard as the ground that grew their livelihoods. next month on The Way It Was. Um, Sam and Joe went off on a hike uh, early one morning and um, uh, Joe was sort of bent on going to Taylor Peak and they parted and that was the last that anybody's ever heard of him. On August 14, 1933, a 22-year-old graduate student vanishes on vacation in Rocky Mountain National Park. 85 years later, his case remains the oldest open cold case for the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. And his nephew is still looking for answers. There was all kind of tantalizing evidence that maybe he hiked out of the park and... You know, pe people get lost, but they've been found or the remains have been found. I think mm -hmm. there's only two cases in all of um, Rocky Mountain National Park where there's been no trace of the individuals and one of those has been Joe. Tune in next month for our next episode of The Way It Was, Without a Trace, The Curious Case of Joseph Halpern. <laughs>